Now, of course, there are many dangerous things in this world, sharks, lightning, storms of every kind, angina. But one of the most dangerous things in the known universe is to be loved by the mob. Loved by the mob is an unstable relationship where people adore you, worship you, treasure the very ground that you walk on, and then turn on you in a murderous rage. So it's really important to not be loved by the mob. Example will be Marie Antoinette. Originally, of course, she was just Maria Antonia. And the transformation into Marie Antoinette on marrying Louis Auguste was initially met with fervent adoration by the French. At the tender age of 15, remember they, which were a little faster back then, her elegance captivated Paris. Her carriage was often halted by crowds, showering her with admiration and gifts. Marshal de Brissac, marveling at the crowd's size, told Antoinette, Behold, perhaps 200,000 smitten by your charms. With Louis Auguste's rise, France saw a beacon of hope and renewal in the young royals, reminiscent of contemporary celebrities. In particular, you can think of John F. Kennedy and his wife, of course, Jacqueline Kennedy. It was called Camelot, and they were young and photogenic and elegant and so on. The fact that they were fairly rancid human beings, he struck by various ailments and illnesses and addictions, in particular, of course, sex addiction, was pretty, pretty wretched all round. But, you know, you don't have to be good if you can look good in the modern world of imagery. And of course, this was occurring in the late 18th century as well. So what happens in a collective? Well, they love you till they don't, right? In Le Bon's The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, published in 1895, he got this pretty well, and I quote, They only entertain the, the mob, right? They only entertain violent and extreme sentiments that, in their case, sympathy quickly becomes adoration and antipathy, almost as soon as it is aroused, is transformed into hatred. One thing that is the case with the mob mind is it doesn't do nuance, it doesn't do ambivalence, and it doesn't do middle of the pendulum. It doesn't seem to... I mean, if you know people like this in your life, they don't seem to notice that five minutes ago they were angry, now they're friendly. That yesterday they hated you, today they love you, that they say they're not attracted to you and then they grab your butt. Like just, you know, people who don't seem to notice changes in moods. It's a kind of alarming and not very safe at all to be around. Now, of course, economic hardships and insidious rumors quickly shifted love to loathing. Marie Antoinette, once Francis Darling, became the maligned L'Autrichien, reflecting a cruel play on words likening her to a bitch from Austria. Scandalous pamphlets painted her as hedonistic and immoral, engaging in unspeakable acts. Yes, the love and the hate thing. And of course, parents who claim that they love you but actually abuse you create a volatile situation where love and hatred flicker like a lighthouse or the red and blue on top of a police car, just round and round, come and go. Yet in truth, Marie Antoinette was in fact a beacon of modesty and benevolence. She redefined palace etiquette, promoted egalitarian values, often dining with the common children from the street. She would just send valets out into the street, grab hungry children, bring them in to dine. And of course, you remember what happened to the guy who was in charge of the Bastille when he tried to negotiate. Being friendly with the mob is kind of risky. It's kind of, well, risky, to put it mildly. So the divergence between 
Perception and reality underscores the perilous volatility of public sentiments. So, defying such a distorted depiction, Marie Antoinette radiated genuine kindness, grand generosity, and a benevolent spirit. Rather than embracing opulence, she displayed a modest taste for beauty and exhibited deep compassion for those less fortunate. She abandoned traditional aristocratic seating arrangements of the palace and often had children of the common folk, as we said, to dine alongside her own royal children. And, of course, you can think of this. The closest modern example would be Princess Diana, the people's princess, goodbye England's rose, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And her work with the AIDS patients, her work with landmines and so on. She really never lived long enough for the people or the public to turn on her in general. But that would have, I mean, undoubtedly happened if she hadn't died, what was it, 97 in the Paris Tunnel? But yeah, so think of Marie Antoinette as close to Princess Diana as possible in Princess Diana's sort of height of fame before the divorce and the uh, other stuff that happened, the Fayette stuff. All right. So when Marie Antoinette encountered stern rebukes from the people in her later life, she viewed them as individuals with good hearts, though perhaps led astray by misinformed judgments. Ah, yes. That's the big, the big question. People are you used to love me, now they hate me. And you say, oh, well, you see, it's just, they're just missing some facts. They're just missing some data. They're just, you know, missing one piece of the puzzle and you give them that piece, they'll click it into place and the full glorious picture will come into view that people loved you because they believed in your virtues. They've been told that you're not virtuous, therefore they hate you. And all you, do, all you need to do is remind them of your virtues and they'll love you again. But that's not the way it goes. The crowd, the mob, and its adulation is more akin to a turbo fan slash stalker. The stalker thinks you're the greatest guy ever. The stalker thinks you're the greatest woman ever, and he just loves and worships and adores you. But the moment you try to create some boundaries or set some space or, I don't know, take out a restraining order if he gets too aggressive, then you're the worst person in the world. And I mean, I've had this, uh, this happened in the business world once or twice where some other manager would be my biggest fan. And then if I went in a different direction, suddenly I was just like complete enemy. Like that that flip, it's really closer to a stalker. And a stalker loves you, you set some boundaries, then he hates you and wants to destroy you. You don't sit there and say, well, no, but if I remind the stalker that I'm a good person, then he'll stop being a stalker. It's like, that's well, that's not really the way it works, right? Stalkers are you know, very dangerous. So she felt that the mob had been misinformed if they were informed correctly, they would be nice again. And, uh, well, we'll see how that, how that played out. Now, of course, many believe that she said, let them eat cake. Uh, this, too, is a lie. She never did say, let them eat cake. The statement emerged from the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his book Confessions. And he attributed, attributed that phrase to an unnamed princess. It's vital to realize that when Rousseau wrote this, Marie Antoinette was just an innocent child in Austria, far removed from the political intrigues of France. When you lie about what people say, you can generate mass murder, murder on an industrial scale, even up to and including genocide, when you lie about what people say. This is why gossip is such a sin in all rational religions in terms of like the effects of morality, in particular in Christianity, thou shalt not bear false witness. The people who worshipped Marie Antoinette 
who then turned on her, spoke the most vile things about her, which to the credulous and the unintelligent come across as facts. And of course, if you look at the disasters of the last hundred years, I say 110 years, if you want to include the beginning of World War I, if you look at war as a whole, what is it driven by? It's driven by lies, reputational destruction, deplatforming, all driven by uh, falsehoods, right? So you lie about people who are anti-war, they get deplatformed, and 600,000 people die in Eastern Europe. Lies are fatal, often, in this kind of way. So, on the 5th of October in the year 1789, the Versailles Palace witnessed an unprecedented upheaval. An angry group, consisting predominantly of irate fishmongers, market women, and even some men disguised in female garments, launched an audacious assault on the palace. Boy, you know, if you look at the French Revolution in particular, it's easy to see just how evil women can be as well. Of course, we look at wars and bad wars and unjust wars and invasions and occupations and colonizations and imperialism and so on. We say, oh, look at all these men doing these terrible things. But of course, it was the men who were forced into military service. So we look at that and we say, well, here are the men. In revolutions, though, because they're local, it's not conscription, it's not a formal army, you see how eager women are for violence, right? The violence that women do is usually confined to the home. The men, the violence that men do is out there in public, so men are assumed to be more violent, even though mothers hit their children a lot more than fathers do. And in this case, when you study these kinds of revolutions, you really see what happens in the darkened heart of the feminine world, because in this case, again, mostly mostly women. Now, this mostly female mob had these sort of chilling chants, including declarations to harm the queen in sadistic ways as they brandished pikes, axes, cannons, and other weapons. And, I mean, this is, I don't mean to diminish this to nothing, but this is the Mean Girls phenomenon writ large, that there's some queen of the high school that all the other girls want to be friends with, but if they gain power over her in whatever way, they will often act to destroy her. They will turn on her. And this is this writ infinitely larger. As daylight succumbed to the darkness of night on the 5th of October in the year 1789, the mob's actions grew even more chaotic and untamed. There were instances where they disrobed in the midst of the rain, eerily echoing the unbridled enthusiasm one might see at raucous music festivals. The height of the horror was reached when, in the early hours of the morning, around 2 a.m., a faction of these women infiltrated the palace. Their ferocity led them to decapitate two of the palace guards. Their sinister intentions towards Queen Antoinette were laid bare in their ghastly shouts demanding her whereabouts and articulating the brutalities they intended to inflict upon her. Queen Antoinette narrowly evaded this aggressive, mostly female crowd. In their anger at her escape, they ravaged her bedchamber, breaking mirrors and destroying her bed. Amidst rising tensions, King Louis the Sixteenth conceded to their overwhelming demands, the demands of the mob. Their sorrowful journey to the Tuileries Palace, a palace in Paris, was marked by their guards' severed heads on spikes. At the Tuileries, the royal family faced confinement and degradation with Marie Antoinette under unceasing watch. Their once glorious life at Versailles was irreparably shattered. Pressured, of course, by the mob and the general social collapse, King Louis XVI endorsed a new constitution, dramatically diminishing his royal power. Shortly after 
on October the 10th, 1789, the National Constitutional Assembly took over Catholic Church lands, selling them as assignats. Took over the church, hated the church, hostile to the church. Did the church protect the children? Did the church live up to the commandments of Jesus to protect the least among you, the least powerful among you, the most helpless and dependent, the children? No. Why were the women so brutal? Well, of course, pair bonding, motherhood, breastfeeding, eye contact. It's great for growing empathy in the babies, but it's also great for helping to expand empathy within the mothers. Mother-child bonding has, of course, a civilizing effect upon the child, but it also has a civilizing effect upon the mother. Her heart grows, her compassion grows, her sensitivity grows. When you really bond with your children, and I know this as a father now, I was fortunate enough, and thank you guys for all the support, but I was fortunate enough to stay home with my daughter, if I have for the last, that's almost 15 years now. When you see a baby growing from you know, virtually nothing to an adult, she's almost an adult now, when you see that, what happens is, you see everyone you meet, you see all the way back to babyhood. Like you've seen the whole journey. Because you don't remember your own journey in particular. You certainly don't remember pregnancy and you don't remember the early years. My memory only kicked in around 10 months, which I think is somewhat early for a lot of people. And of course, I've talked to a lot of people on the show who don't really remember their childhoods at all. But in this instance of parenting and pair bonding and being there for the entire journey... I look at people in, of course, a different way than I did before I became a parent. I see them not as individuals that sort of spring forward as I meet them, but rather I see them as individuals with a long blurred history all the way back to conception. And I think about the stress of their mother, if their mother was stressed over the course of the womb and what that might have done to their development. I think about their babyhood. I think about whether they were breastfed. I think about whether they had eye contact and skin contact, whether they were safe and secure. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is forgiven and everyone is understood in a sort of positive and benevolent and sympathetic way, but I'm just aware that people with a lot of unprocessed trauma have kind of effectively no free will because they're just kind of reacting to the trauma. Now, they have a choice as to whether to deal with their trauma, but if they don't deal with their trauma then they end up with very little free will, and which means that they're easily controllable and manipulatable, manipulable <laughs> and uh, susceptible to propaganda and, and NPCs, right? It's kind of like you have the choice to smoke or not, but if you do choose to smoke, you don't have the choice to run a mar marathon, usually at the, same, at the same time. You have the choice to eat too much or not eat too much, but if you do eat too much, you don't have the choice to be a high jumper, right? So, not exercising one choice removes a whole bunch of other choices. Not exercising the choice to quit smoking, eat less, and so on removes a whole bunch of other choices. And if you choose not to deal with your childhood trauma, then you end up with very little free will as an adult because you're basically running from these various triggers and avoiding yourself. And once you're ejected from yourself, somebody can basically jump in and grab the wheel and control you. So... People were quite hostile towards the church. The women's brutality, I mean, the women were, were raised badly, of course, probably through wet nurses and ignored and swaddled. So they were full of chaos and rage and, I guess, evil by that point. But also, 
these women had probably also cast their children off to wet nurses and brutalized their children. And partly as a result of throwing their children off to wet nurses and brutalizing their children, many of their children had died. And of course, if you weren't raised well yourself, it is tougher without dealing with the trauma to raise children well. Because you have your abusive alter ego parent yelling in your ear. It's like trying to do math with somebody yelling random numbers into your ear. It's kind of tough, right? So they took over the Catholic church lands. And this, I mean, obviously to a tiny degree, I understand this perspective. I mean, one of the things that I was well aware of growing up was that I was surrounded by very religious people who did nothing to help me with being abused as a child. And as a result, since religion seems to be unable to reliably solve the problem of child abuse, and of course there's wonderful people who do great work out of religious motivation to help children, but it's not in general a problem that is solved by religion. And of course religion can involve itself in child abuse, you know, hellfire and damnation and born evil and all that kind of stuff, spare the rod, misinterpreted as hitting the children and so on, right? So it can be a fuel for that kind of stuff. So if people were this miserable, they were brutalized as children, they were raised by strangers badly, poorly, malnourished, cursed at, reviled, told that they were sinful and born evil, and they were starving, and there was chaos, and there was no salvation. So when your society is falling apart and you are wretched and miserable as a result of growing up in your society, well, everyone who's in charge becomes a target. And particularly those who are in charge of the morals. If your society is dysfunctional and evil, and I think it's fair to say that in the late 18th century, if not for a long time before, French society was dysfunctional and evil in that it harmed children and was constantly at war and in debt and had an unjust legal system and central planning and control of the economy, which killed people's opportunities. Oh, it's a pretty dysfunctional and evil society. And so when you are pushed to the very corner, to the to very extinction, to the edge of survivability, when you're pushed to all of that by a thoroughly immoral and evil society, then you look at those who are in charge of the morals with hatred. Because either the people in charge of the morals of a society that's turned evil, either the people in charge of the morals of an evil society are themselves evil and only lying about being good, in other words, the society manifests their evil doctrines, or they have good doctrines but are utterly unable to put them into practice, right? I mean, if somebody claims he wants to lose weight and he keeps gaining weight, then either he's putting a bad diet into practice or he has a good diet that he's not doing, right? If he's on the all sugar, fat, and salt diet, <laughs> 5,000 calories a day, then he's going to gain weight, right? So he's either following a bad diet or he's unable to follow a good diet. It's the same thing with morals. If the society has become evil, either the moralists in society have evil morals, they're evil themselves, in which case they should be punished for lying about being good, or they are virtuous, but they have no capacity to enact their virtues. In fact, they're helpless as people with good morals and good virtues. They're helpless to prevent evil people from taking over, but they're still taking your money and telling you how to be good, in which case they're hypocrites. Like, there's just no good answer. If a society has become evil, all of those in charge of the morals will be 
attacked in one way or another. So that's the price, really, of falling prey to temptation and corruption. Or as, of course, the Bible says the wages of sin are death. So there was a lot of hostility towards the church and its lands. How dare you take all our money and deliver unto us an evil society? Oof. Hard to argue in some ways, right? It behooves us, I suppose, to mention the Jacobins. We're not going to go into the labyrinth of various factions in the French Revolution. From a philosophical standpoint, they're not super important. The Jacobins, of course, were the most famous political group of the French Revolution. And they were really committed to extreme egalitarianism, which meant, of course, violence. Violence and egalitarianism go hand in hand. If you think about a race, a running race, let everyone run. The guy who gets across the finish line fastest is the winner. But if everyone has to get across the finish line at the same time, then you've got to tell this person to run slower, this person to run faster, and everyone's going to change their behavior, they're going to sit around, and then you have to compel them to move again, and it's just really, really violence-based, this radical egalitarianism. And the Jacobins led the revolutionary government from about mid-1793 to about mid-1794. Now, initially, the Jacobins were mostly middle class. And remember, the middle class were those raised with more voluntarism, raised with more quality, raised with more negotiation. And they were not as violent, of course. They were not as committed to egalitarianism. So they started with the mostly middle class membership. But as the revolution radicalized or simultaneous to, of course, in fact, it's a little complex, of course, the membership began to be swollen by lower classes, uh, shopkeepers, artisans, and tradespeople, and so on. People who'd had a much worse childhood. And when you get people who have had a much worse childhood in charge of a political movement, the political movement radicalizes and becomes violent. Now, the Jacobins originated as the club Breton at Versailles, and they all met with deputies from other parts of France to concert their action, they were actually named because they met in a place where the Jacobins used to meet. In the former convent of the Dominicans, they were known in Paris as the Jacobins. Now, their goal was to protect the gains of the revolution against blowback from the aristocrats. And the club soon admitted non-deputies, again, prosperous bourgeois men of letters, and acquired franchises or affiliates throughout France. But it's wild. So by July 1790... There were about 1,200 members in the Parisian club and 152 affiliate clubs. In July of 1791, the Jacobin club was split. There was a petition calling for the removal of Louis XVI. And many of the moderates left to join another club. Maximilien Robespierre was one of the few who remained. He assumed leadership position, position of prominence in the Jacobins. So during the trial of the king, we'll sort of get to that in a bit, the moderates who did not want political violence were ostracized, were excluded from the Paris Club. And those who remained, those who ascended, were very keen on the use of terror to defend the revolutionary government. Why would they assume that power meant violence, that power meant abuse? Well, what's the first power that we encounter? In life, what's the first power that we encounter 
as children, what is our initial understanding of and experience of power? It's our parents. And if the parents are violent, when you assume political power, you then turn into your parents. If all resistance is met with escalations of aggression, when you're a kid, through your parents, when you gain power, you will view all who oppose you as bad children to be punished. And this is the family situation writ large. And remember, we're jumping around a little bit in time to get to the themes. Of course, everybody knows there was a revolutionary dictatorship that was established uh, beginning in the summer of 1793. And the local Jacobin clubs became instruments of the reign of terror, the reign of blood from the guillotine. There were, by 1793, somewhere between 5,000 and 8,000 Jacobin clubs all throughout France, membership of about half a million, and they were part of the administrative machinery of the new government. They raised supplies for the army, they policed the local markets, making sure that the goods were produced in this sort of centrally planned, dictatorial kind of way. And a lot of the local government officials, of course, the mayors and, and so on, were replaced with members of the Jacobin clubs. And they led the de-Christianizing movement, organized these revolutionary holidays, and so on. And the clubs were basically the secret police, the Stasi, the NKVD. They followed around and watched over people whose opinions were suspect, who might rebel, and so on. And of course, they would torture them and murder them, and so on, became the local psycho brigade. And this is important to see that when the movement expands to include those with bad childhoods, the movement becomes dictatorial. And I think we've shown fairly clearly that those particularly lower on in the social hierarchy, they had really bad childhoods. And I think we also have shown that the upper royalty also had really bad childhoods. So it was a fight of the bad childhoods from the upper royalty to the bad childhoods of the lower classes. And the middle class was squeezed out, was kicked out, was thrown out. Thank you for your intellectual justifications. Now we will let our murder fest run free. And there was, of course, a lot of grievances that were completely valid. The famous Alexis de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America in the 19th century. So in 1856, of course, long after the revolution, he reviewed these the so-called grievance books, which were everything that the various social layers in France demanded from the Estes Generale. And he said, when I came to gather all the individual wishes with a sense of terror, I realized that their demands were for the wholesale and systematic abolition of all the laws and all the current practices in the country. Straight away, I saw that the issue here was one of the most extensive and dangerous revolutions ever observed in the world. And the peasants, of course, they had it absolutely wretched. Here's a quote from an observer, there was not one action in rural life that did not require the peasants to pay a ransom. Feudal rights thus extended their clutches over every force of nature, everything that grew, moved, breathed, even over the fire burning in the oven to bake the peasants' poor bread, being taxed and controlled in everything you do. An English agriculturalist named Arthur Young remarked at the time, leading up to the French Revolution, the poor seemed poor indeed. The children terribly ragged, if possible worse clad than if with no clothes at all. 
As to shoes and stockings, they are luxuries. One third of what I have seen of this province seems uncultivated, and nearly all of it in misery. What have kings and ministers and parliaments and states to answer for their prejudices, seeing millions of hands that would be industrious, idle, and starving through the execrable maxim of, the, of despotism or the equally detestable prejudices of a feudal nobility? It was really tough in the country you were taxed and controlled on everything. And if you made it to the city, you're an artisan, journeyman, laborer, you had huge hardships as well. There was, of course, all of these economic laws and changes in the kingdom threatened the whole apprenticeship system. And the ability of craftsmen to control their own work was pretty much taken away. And if you were a day laborer, well, if you were in the city, you had to produce papers proving your employment, and you were stalked and harassed and beaten by the royal police. And at the same time, sort of leading up to the revolution, there was waves of immigration that brought huge demographic changes to Paris. There's a historian named Eric Hazan, estimates that in 1789, about two-thirds of Paris's population was immigrants. And they each had to, and I quote, request a passport in their region of origin to avoid being arrested en route as vagabonds and sent to beggars' colonies. Horrendous. And remember, of course, first and second estate, nobility, the clergy, they were doing uh, fine. Most nobles were very wealthy and, of course, inherited their positions through heredity. The Catholic Church controlled about 8% of total private wealth. 1% of the population controlled about 8% of the total private wealth. And remember the financial crisis. Oh, the financial crisis is unbelievably brutal and something that the West seems to be careening towards as well. During the Seven Years' War, there was a system of accounting that had developed, I mean, fairly chaotically. But what happened was the king's functionaries, his advisors, his accountants, had no way of knowing or accounting for the kingdom's wealth. All of the systems of accounting had broken down. And so, and of course the king wouldn't hear any bad news, and so the kingdom's wealth was a great foggy mystery until it had almost disappeared. And foreign financiers were recalling their debts, right? Who is really in charge, right? Who is really in charge? The person who lends or the person who borrows? Well, the person who lends is in charge. Because once you get addicted to borrowing, you signing your soul over to the lender. When you borrow, then you, of course, end up with a social structure far beyond your means. A system of control, an army, a tax collection system, a whole system of laws and oppression, which requires the constant inflow of external capital. And who's in charge? You get mad at the king. Well, sure, of course, the king, the king was abusive, incompetent, violent. And the king demanded more and more money. And of course, the lender said, well, we're going, you're going to have to raise taxes to pay for this. We're not going to lend you money if you don't have any collateral, if you don't have tax receipts. And so Louis XVI squeezed the people harder and harder and harder. Increased taxes from all layers of society. And the peasants were disarmed, so they're easy to prey upon. And the peasants were stripped of their basic food to pay for the king, to pay for the church, to pay for the nobility. Famine, of course, was looming because of this drought and hailstorms and so on. One mayor of a rural district in France remarked, quote, It is impossible to find within half a league's radius a man prepared to drive a cartload of wheat. 
The populace is so enraged they would kill for a bushel. And you could see the same thing happening, of course, under communism in Ukraine, once the wheat, the breadbasket of Europe, a wheat producer. The starving peasants, they did not want to deliver their scant flour to their feudal masters. And of course, there was a huge war debt that Louis XVI was trying to pay off. War and debt go hand in hand. If you want to end war, you have to end fiat currency and debt. So the starving peasants obviously ate the food themselves and said, we have nothing to give you, which only increased their oppression. Now, let's look at the politicians. We're going to pause for a moment, just observe the people who were attempting to grasp control over the masses. And I quote, during the throes of the French Revolution that began in 1789, filthy with lawyers and journalists, the Jacobins rose to prominence as the leading political faction. Now, this wasn't just a small gathering. They grew into a massive movement for Republican values and possibly, with possibly over half a million members. Among their ranks, the ranks of the Jacobins, were significant political entities from the early 1790s prominently. The Mountain, also known as Montagnard, from their habit of occupying the topmost seats in the National Convention, and the, and the Girondins. Now, the Girondins... I mean, they were clear in what they wanted, this political party. Uh, they wanted to end the monarchy. Yet, as the revolution's intensity surged, they began to distance themselves, expressing concern over its unbridled momentum. This naturally put them at odds with the Montagnards, a much more radical faction. So before the French Revolution's upheaval, Georges Danton was just a modest lawyer. However, his oratory prowess quickly cemented its place in the Cordeliers Club, a hub in the notably revolutionary Cordeliers district of Paris, which defiantly acted during events like the storming of the Bastille. What else was there? Who else was there? Jean-Paul Marat, originally from Switzerland, emerged as a significant voice during this period. He was really a polyglot, a physician, a scientist, a journalist. Marat ardently championed the rights of the commoners, the Saint-Coulottes, through his fiery newspaper, L'Armée du Pupil, love of the people. This newspaper was so provocative that many believed Marat was inciting unrest. The term sans-culotte symbolized the class distinction. Culottes were the fashionable silk knee breeches of the 18th century nobility and bourgeoisie and the working class sans-culotte wore, wore pantaloons or long trousers instead. In 1774, Marat published Chains of Slavery, which criticized England's constitution with a touch of Rousseauian ideologies. He believed that specific drastic actions like beheadings were necessary to ensure the revolution's success and the people's welfare. Now, of course, the most notorious of the revolutionaries was the lawyer-turned-politician Maximilien Robespierre. You've heard this name before. Like A friend of mine, when I was a teenager, was told that, as a child, when he was a child, he was told that if he didn't do X, Y, or Z, Boney would come to get him, and he later sort of looked this up, and it turned out that Boney referred to Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> it was his general fear. And Robespierre has kind of come down through history as that kind of madman. And it really goes to show, and I talked about this in my NFT presentation, The Rise of Nazism, it's wild how much education transcends, ignores, steps over, and sometimes garrets morality. What does it mean like to say? Well, if we educate people, they'll be better, they'll be moral, they'll be good. Well, a lot of the most psychotic people involved in the French Revolution were 
journalists, upper middle class, highly educated, lawyers, writers, intellectuals, smart people, very well educated. And they could not, of course, claim to lack knowledge or privilege. It's the same thing with some terrorists, right? A lot of terrorists come from sort of the upper middle class and so on. It's not poverty, grinding poverty that is driving their discontent. It's something else. It's something else. And the idea that education is just the solution to all of our social problems, well, just educate the kids more and put the kids in school and put the kids in university and, and have them take out loans and, and educate them and then they'll be better the outside, oof, on the other side. On the other side of education is paradise. Well, that's not true. When Germany succumbed to, or didn't really succumb to, voted in the National Socialists, the Nazis, Germany was by far the most educated country in all of Europe. Education is a propulsion mechanism. It can propel you towards knowledge and wisdom, or it can propel you towards prejudice and hatred. And here we can see as well that the upper classes whose children were abused, who allowed their children to be abused, who ensured their children were abused with this sort of wet nurse situation and binding and ignoring them and throwing them in boarding school and beating them and so on. Well, that's a problem, right? Because you're going to have very smart people, very eloquent people, who are going to use their sophistic skills, their language skills, their oratorical skills to whip up the mob and point it at their enemies. Education makes people more right? More intelligent, more learned, hopefully more wise. But if you are kind of an aggressive lunatic psycho, then education is going to make you more so. There's only so much violence an individual can enact. But an individual with eloquence and with stature and with oratorical skills and a knowledge of the law well, that person can do far more violence than any individual. Even the most prolific serial killers can only kill 100, 200 or so people over the course of their life. But sophists and educated people who don't touch any weapons themselves can whip others into such a frenzy that hundreds of thousands, millions of people can die. The greatest weapons are always words. And when we educate the traumatized and the violent and the psychotic and the aggressive and the soulless and the sociopathic and the unfeeling who look at human beings like worms, like ants, like livestock, without any affection, when we traumatize intelligent children with great skill in language, we create these Necromancers, these wizards of darkness who can cast spells of death on hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Robespierre was just such one of these people taking traumatized people and giving them a great education turns them into weapons. If they don't deal with their trauma, which of course this was not a big thing to deal with your childhood trauma in the 18th century, you tended to act it out, right? So Maximilien Robespierre, he was an active participant in the Estates Generales, the Constituent Assembly, and the Jacobin Club. He advocated for universal suffrage among men with a particular focus on those who were denied the right to participate as passive citizens. He worked towards ending the use of the death penalty during peaceful times, as well as the cessation of the Atlantic slave trade. His exploration of the classics inspired him to desire Roman virtues, yet he aimed to imitate the citizen-soldier persona advocated by Rousseau. He found resonance in the concepts of the renowned philosopher 
regarding political reform as outlined in his work, Rousseau's work, The Social Contract. Like Rousseau, Robespierre believed in the significance of the general will of the populace as the foundation of political authority. Robespierre derived his notions of revolutionary virtue and his strategy for establishing political supremacy through direct democracy from the influences of Montesquieu and Rousseau. Robespierre consistently wore a culotte and maintained his elaborate powdered, curled, and scented wig. His demeanor was characterized as nervous, timid, and suspicious. It is actually a very interesting thing. You see people who are very impressive in public, who speak and gesture and command a mob and so on. In private, they're often quite nervous and darting-eyed and suspicious and so on. I actually remember seeing an interview with Ayn Rand where she just looked very hard-eyed and suspicious and not quite the magnificent mind that she appears in or she generates an image of in her novels and so on. And the wig thing was interesting. The wig thing was because there was a bald king, so everybody had to wear wigs, and the reason they powdered them was the wigs were infested with insects and, and other than and teas or ticks and fleas and so on, right? So it just became that way. And it kind of ended just like that. You know, it's pretty wild how you get these centuries-long habits or fashions that just end. Like foot binding in China was just like a thing for a long time and then just ended in like one generation, much to the relief, of course, of the children whose feet were in agony over the course of their lives with this ridiculous binding stuff. So, Now, Robespierre found himself excluded from committees and the presidency of the National Assembly. His sole appointment was as the secretary of the National Assembly in June 1790. Now, Robespierre is said to have coined the French motto, liberty, equality, fraternity. By adding fraternity, it would later be updated again to liberty, equality, fraternity, or death, or death. Now, the social contract, the will of the people, virtue is the will of the people. Virtue is the will of the people. Now, why would intellectuals like the idea that virtue is the will of the people? Are they passive receivers of the will of the people? They are not. They are not. I want you to imagine, I mean, it's a bit disrespectful, but go with me for a moment on the analogy path. Think of a bunch of sheep and a sheepdog. And the sheepdog says, wherever the sheep go is the good. Now, the sheepdog is not just sitting there, let the sheep roam around, right? They're not, yeah, I wonder where the sheep want to go today. Well, that's the good. No, the sheepdog, sheepdog is barking and snapping and yelping and chomping and driving the sheep from here to there, hither and thither, <laughs> from, from near to far. So if the sheepdog wants the sheep to go around the tree at the far end of the field, the sheepdog will bark and drive the sheep over that way. And then the sheepdog can say, well, you know, we're just looking at the will of the sheep, and obviously the will of the sheep is to go to the tree at the end of the yard. So the reason why hyper-eloquent individuals, the people with this sort of magic ability to tap into the collective unconscious and, in a sense, will people, like Sauron with his ring, you know, the famous scene at the end of The Return of the King when the ring gets destroyed, spoiler, when the ring gets destroyed and all of the creatures who were ginned up in ferocity against the humans and the elves and the dwarves all scatter because the Sauron, the ring lord, has lost control over their minds, which is why I talk about the ring as sophistry, as eloquence. 
So why is it that people like talking about the general will? Look at someone like Rousseau. He says, oh, well, you see, the general will is the good. But he had an incredible ability to change people's minds or program people or propagandize. So however you want, he had the ability to change people's minds. So when people who are intellectuals and incredibly good at convincing people of things and very eloquent, and particularly when they're good at writing, because you can only talk to so many people back in the day. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't even microphones. You can only talk to so many people before your voice gives out. But particularly if you were great at pamphleteering, if you're great at pamphleteering and great at writing, then you will talk about the will of the people. Why? Because you're the sheepdog and you're barking and snapping and guiding the people to where you want them to be. It's really, really important to understand. The will of the people is only praised by those who have sure evidence that they can control the will of the people. If the sheepdog drives the sheep to his doggy bowl and then says, well, I guess the sheep just wanted me to eat. It's like, no, the dog wanted to eat, eat and he drove the sheep that way. It's really, really important to understand that the will of the people is simply, I'm good at programming the masses. So I can call the direction of the will of the people the good because it's me. The will of the people is an updated version of the will of God, right? If you have, I won't even say a priest because that's specific. If you have a warlock, a witch doctor, a magic man who says it is the will of God that we do X, Y, and Z, well, he's the priest, he's the sorcerer, he's the witch doctor, the magic man, and so only he has access to the will of the God, will of God. And so when he says, God wills us to do X, then people do X. Now, when he says, you must obey God, he's not saying, really, objectively, you must obey God, because God only speaks through him. He's saying, when he says, you must obey God, he's saying, you must obey me. And he's obviously very eloquent, very good at convincing people, very good at speaking in tongues or doing the dance or whatever it takes to have people believe that he's an authentic witch doctor or channeler of the divine or the magical or the ancestors. It doesn't really matter. So when you get a great skepticism towards religion, you have to find some other way to get people to obey you without saying, obey me. And so what you do is you create this mystical thing, this democratic ghost or god called the will of the people, which you then control when you gin up and spread all of this hostility towards the king, paint the king in his worst possible light, Marie Antoinette, in her worst possible light as greedy and hateful and incestuous and debauched and degenerate and all of this sort of thing. When you whip out people's hatreds and then you say, well, it's the will of the people that the king be deposed. It's like, no, you want to depose the king. You want to replace the king. You can't do it alone. So you whip up the mob and then you say, well, it's the will of the people. Now, it's the same class of people who are great at eloquence, don't want people to obey them because that's too obvious and it won't work. Do what I say. Why? No, 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 do what God says. Do what the will of the people says, which I control, right? I control what the gods say in ancient times, and I control the will of the people. They manifest my psychosis, so it's just a different way of forcing people to do what you want. You also, of course, have to watch out for anybody who talks about equality. Oh, it's like any organization with the word social in the title is uh, probably full of a bunch of people who want to do great harm. Equality, equality. Equality appeals to the venomous losers. 
Because those at the bottom end of the wheel, when they hear equality, they think they're going to get a step up. People at the top of the wheel, when they hear equality, they think they're going to be cut down, and they're usually right. So the people at the bottom, when they hear equality, they are going to get raised up. Stuff is going to be taken from others and given to them. This is a siren song that the communists had in China, which I talked about in my documentary on Hong Kong, which you should check out at freedomain.com slash documentaries. Equality. Equality is the dog whistle for the venomous losers to act out their vengeance against the more successful. Right? Everybody who fails in life is given the great temptation of saying, I didn't fail. Others betrayed and stole from me. Right? Everybody who loses a girlfriend to another guy can either say to himself, I should have been a better boyfriend, or he can say, I was a great boyfriend, but that other guy just lied to her and stole her from me and all that kind of stuff. And then he is full of this sort of venomous rage, right? When you lose, you can either use that as a spur to improve, or you can sit into the squalid sewage of rage and resentment and want those who beat you destroyed. And, you know, we can go both ways. <laughs> I think we've both had, uh, we've all had that impulse to go either way. And maybe we've traveled a little way down both paths. But equality, egalitarianism, equity, ooh, that is a dangerous, dangerous term throughout history, and we can really see this coming out in this situation. All right, let's talk to the flight to Varennes. This is the 20th to the 21st of June, 1791. All right, let's talk about the Marquis de Lafayette. So he was a man, really, of two worlds. He was from a martial family and background, had fought in the American Revolution, and pushed for liberty in France. He was also a noble who joined and supported the Third Estate, following the establishment of the National Constituent Assembly and the Tennis Court Oath, which we talked about before. The Marquis de Lafayette collaborated with Thomas Jefferson to compose the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the first step towards writing a constitution for France. Now, let's go back to early 1791, a couple of months before, something called the Day of Daggers. So what happened was a riot broke out in Paris, and Tullier's palace was swarming with armed nobles intent on safeguarding the king. The National Guard, left led by Lafayette, thought that the nobles meant to kidnap the king. A misunderstanding, as is often the case, triggered a skirmish with Marquis de Lafayette's National Guard at its center. The king intervened, demanding the nobles exit. Okay, let's fast forward to June 20th. The royal family, seeking to evade their looming fate made a desperate escape, forever turned, termed the Flight du Varennes. Their attempt was marred by misjudgment. The king grievously mis miscalculated public sentiment, believing the revolution was just a Parisian madness or fervor. So they disguised themselves, tried to escape, and the king was captured. And there's two stories that emerge as to his capture. One is of a young boy who recognized the king from a coin. He gave the boy to thank him for giving him directions, right? So here you go, kid, thanks. And then the kid looks at the coin, looks at the guy and says, hey, that's the king, and goes and tells everyone. Another is a postmaster's keen eye spotting him from currency as a whole. And they were captured, of course, and their humiliating return to Paris was marked by derisive effigies and stoning, right? So, of course... We don't want to have too much sympathy for the king. Of course. Of course. Why? Well, the king was surprised by the sentiment of his subjects. 
Well, what does that mean? It means that the king did not allow for free speech. Either the king did not allow for free speech in the land as a whole, which was certainly the case to a large degree, or the king did not allow for free speech among his courtiers. In other words, his advisors and his courtiers, anyone who gave him bad news was attacked or dismissed or beheaded or thrown into a prison or ostracized or excommunicated or <laughs> whatever, right? Expelled. Which means that the king didn't know how bad things were, right? When you punish people for giving you bad news, you often end up with the worst news of all. The king had obviously been shielded from the sentiments of the public, which meant that the king had punished truth-tellers. And when you punish truth-tellers to the point where you think that the citizenry loves you when they, in fact, want to behead you in general, I mean, who do you have to blame but yourself? Who do you have to blame but yourself when you attack and destroy those who give you bad news and live in a bubble of coercive delusion who is to blame when things go badly? Well, if you deny the truth, the truth will still get you. <laughs> if you don't look up that smoking is bad for you, does that mean that your lungs are immune to carcinogens? Of course not. Of course not. If you don't look up diabetes, does that mean you don't get diabetes? <laughs> of course, right? So don't have too much sorrow for the king. So Lafayette, once respected, faced sharp criticism Danton's searing rebuke implied France could thrive without Lafayette's guidance. Sentiments, which were also echoed by Robespierre, who questioned his loyalty. This event marked a pivotal moment, leading to a notable increase in public animosity towards the French monarchy as a whole, including the king and queen on a personal level. The king's endeavor to escape triggered accusations of treason and fears of foreign involvement, further intensifying the situation. Right. When you are facing an unjust mob who is baying for your execution and you flee, it's easy to twist your flight as evidence of guilt. Why would he be fleeing if he wasn't in the wrong? He's fleeing because he knows that he's in the wrong and so on, right? So, so the radicalization of the revolution was inevitable almost at this point. Of course, as the revolution began to gain strength, remember I was talking about how those who praise the general will are almost always those most adept at manipulating the general will. And in 1791, in the realm of criminal trials, there was a noticeable shift towards giving precedence to oration over evidence or witnesses or other forms of communication. So those who were the most eloquent could use the courts to punish their enemies. The weaponization of the courts is foundational to all revolutions. And Robespierre, big fan of the will of the people, throughout the year 1791, Robespierre gave 328 speeches or orations, which is almost one every day. I suppose he ended up with fairly florid Alex Jones voice at the end of that. He's really, really good at giving speeches and rousing people up, and he's a good sheepdog with the sheep. And then he says, where the sheep go is virtue. And he's driving them from behind driving them from the back. And what chance do they have to resist him? Well, not much at this point. This momentum of language is really important to understand. When it reaches critical mass, society becomes extremely dangerous, and we're getting there in the case and cause of the revolution. 